You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 87 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchot, and this is the show for December 2020. Well, I decided I would end the odd year that it has been with a solo show. Um, well, I guess mainly because the silly season is a really hard time to find panelists, but just also because I, I sort of felt I, I wanted to have a, a one-on-one as the, the final show of this odd, odd year. Um, I've tiled the show 12 whys of phone cameras. Sort of close, I get 12 days of Christmas, I guess. Um, but it, I, the reason this show came about is because I noticed something that caught me by surprise. I was scanning back through all of my photos from this year to pick one for my Christmas uh, digital Christmas card. And I noticed something. Not a single solitary one photograph taken by me in the year 2020 was taken using my DSLR. That has never happened before. It, it, you know, initially I was right at the head of the scoffing at camera phones queue, like, right up there wearing a giant big pink hat going, look at me, look at me, I'm the person who thinks camera phones are the dumbest thing ever on planet Earth. And in terms of photography, they initially were. But now it's 2020, and 100% of my photographic output this year has been taken on my iPhone 11 Pro or my iPhone 12 Pro. Mostly the iPhone 11 Pro, since I've only had the 12 Pro for a couple of weeks. So, obviously, a lot has changed between the first time Nokia thought it might be interesting to add a camera to one of their little candy bar phones, and now. So, that that's sort of where this episode came from. That's what got me thinking. And it was only as I started to write the episode that I realised that there, I think there are 12 reasons why that has happened. So let's, I guess let's tell a story. So I remember vividly the first time I saw a camera on a phone. I mean, they were terrible, right? Let's not beat about the bush. Those early Nokia cameras were terrible photographic influence. They had plastic lenses that had poor optical quality at the best of times, and especially when they were in your pocket for a while and got scratched up, you know, be Jesus. So they they started bad and got worse. The sensors had almost no pixels, and you know what little bit of light they could capture, they mostly captured as noise. So you had color inaccurate, noisy, low resolution images that really, really, really required perfect lighting to have a chance of getting an even vaguely useful image. It worked. Garbage cameras. Absolutely, absolutely garbage. The screens on those phones were also garbage. I mean, they were 
highly pixelated, wouldn't know what colour calibration was if it hit them in the face. I mean, it was not a photographic platform, either for the taking of, processing of, or sharing of, and I know I shouldn't use the word either because there were three options there, but hey, that's what happens when I go off script. I mean, really, they were terrible. They were just awful. So, I don't think it's unfair of me to have scoffed at them initially. Thing is, I held on to my scoffing for too long. And I didn't really understand what those terrible early cameras were, you know, the future they were leading to. They were the first steps down a very, very interesting path. And in fact, Nokia would go a long way down that path. So while Nokia were busy building, I mean, they were almost building cameras that happened to be phones instead of phones that happened to be cameras. That's how seriously Nokia began to take the camera phone concept in the dying days of Windows Phone. And it's almost a pity that the, the Nokia Lumia phones didn't survive because they were superb cameras and the Windows Phone operating system was actually an interesting operating system. It just never quite got the traction to be a success, which is terribly disappointing. Those Nokias, I think, very clearly set the bar for others to copy. And thankfully, you know, many high-end Android vendors, Google and Samsung spring to mind, copied a lot of the features. But so did a a certain fruit company out of Cupertino, California. And so the iPhones, I mean, early iPhones had terrible cameras. Like the, the, the original iPhone and the iPhone 3G, those cameras were awful. But at some point, Apple decided that it was worth investing in phones. And between the Lumiers from Nokia and Apple actually starting to take phones seriously, I don't quite remember which quite instigated it, but we've now ended up in an extremely healthy situation where high-end Android phones and high-end iPhones are competing on the basis of their camera. If you look at the keynotes, they both try to out-camera each other. And that's absolutely pretty brilliant for us uh, photographers. So anyway, it, I, I held on to my prejudices for too long. Much too long. Um, I continued to consider phone cameras a joke well beyond when they actually stopped being a joke. So I'm late to this party. Very late. And yet, 2020 is the year where I finally 100% committed to the party. So I think my first step towards tolerance of, towards embracing phone cameras was, I started to look at it, well, it's better than nothing, you know. Something cool has happened, I'm here, my DSLR isn't, because it weighs a bloody ton and I don't carry it around with me. So hey, this phone camera is better than nothing. Snap. Oh, that was actually decent. And I slowly bought into the cliche that the best camera is the one you have with you. And that, I mean, that's actually, as well as being a cliche, it's it's actually kind of true. And I don't think there's ever been a point where I had a road to Damascus, I've seen the light, I'm a convert moment. but. 
when you look through my social media, what you will see is a slow tipping from posting DSLR shots with a few iPhone shots to posting mostly iPhone shots to posting exclusively iPhone shots. So there wasn't a point when I saw the light. It's just now there's been a point where I've realized that I have completely switched. I have gone from being the ultimate camera phone hater to a 100% camera phone user. Every single photograph that I took in 2020 that was worth sharing with the world was taken on my iPhone. So, does that mean I think my DSLR is never going to have a shutter fire again? No. It's there for when I want to take out the big guns. And if 2020 hadn't have been 2020, the number wouldn't have been zero. But the number would have been small. So where do I still see myself using my DSLR? Well, when it comes to taking high-quality astrophotography shots, that's always going to be the realm of my DSLR. When it comes to nature macros, yeah, I'm having fun with the phone camera, especially with the little clip-on lens I talked about some time ago. Yeah, I'm definitely having fun taking fun macros with my phone camera, but serious butterfly, damselfly, dragonfly, those shots, they're taken with my super zoom, which can focus in at just 15 centimeters or so. There's no way my phone camera can ever compete with that. So when it comes to taking a high, high quality nature macros, my DSLR still has a future. Astrophotography definitely still has a future. The iPhone's night mode is amazing for a camera phone. But I can do more with my DSLR. And since it's going to be on a tripod anyway, the DSLR isn't quite as cumbersome. And when it comes to taking really high quality portraits, I think I'll be using my DSLR for for some time yet, but maybe that one will go away. Um, If it wasn't for the fact that I'm self-isolating, because, well, basically because my better half is in the highly, highly, highly vulnerable category, and in order to protect him, I am behaving as if I'm in the very vulnerable category. So I have been isolating myself, and that means that the normal Bouchot's family tradition of all of us getting together in the approaching Christmas period and me taking portraits of all of the ki- uh, all of the Irish branch of the family for a basic my I gave my grandmother a beautiful photo frame a few years ago and every year I top it up with fresh photographs of her Irish family and that means that normally in early December I we all get together in usually my brother's house and I take photographs of everyone in the Irish branch of the family and we get them printed and sent off to Granny and I get an uncle to sneak in and change the pictures in Granny's photo frame. Well, this year, thanks to COVID, that didn't happen. So the DSLR didn't get used because that didn't happen. So if 2020, if 2020 hadn't have been 2020, I would have taken some DSLR shot. But it would have been a single digit percentage of the total number of keepers 
you know, forget about the total number of shutter fires. That's an irrelevant number to me. What matters to me is the keepers. How many of my keepers remain, you know, would have been iPhone shots of 2020 had been a normal year? Like I say, I wouldn't have been 100%, but it would have been well over 90%. So even if the year had been normal, I still think I would have at some stage realized quite how much the camera phone has become my primary camera and the DSLR has become my break glass in case of emergency, use it sparingly, rarely, and only when it's really worth the effort of lugging the bloody thing around. So that got me thinking, okay, so clearly I have now turned a corner to the point where I am in phone photographer first and a DSLR photographer sometimes. So what changed between those early Nokias that I rightly scoffed at? And the modern smart camera phone, in my case, the iPhone 12 Pro. I think 12 things have changed. And I thought it might be interesting to go through them because I think I can't really see any of the 12 where there isn't more runway, where things can't get even better for the camera phone. So the single most obvious thing that's changed is that from rubbish low-end sensors that were obviously picked up at a bargain basement price and cheap plastic lenses, we've now gone to really high-quality stuff, right? There's sapphire in a whole bunch of the modern camera phone lenses. So these are really high-end optics. They're designed to get the... I mean... They have these amazing multi-part elements to allow the light path to be folded up so you can actually get, you know, a good lens into a very, very thin form factor. The lenses have gotten so much bigger. These are not toy lenses. These are absolute cutting, cutting edge lenses. So the materials that that, are being put into these high-end phone cameras They're simply superb, and they used to not be. So that's obviously a huge change. An effect of this is that the lenses have gotten a lot brighter. And by brighter, I mean they are better at capturing light because, or another way of saying it is they have lower F numbers. High-end camera phones these days have F numbers that I spend really big bucks getting equivalent lenses for the DSLR. I mean, all the lenses on the modern iPhones are f2 point something or better. And in fact, the primary lens on the iPhone 12 Pro is an f1.6. I mean, that's astonishing, an f1.6 lens on a camera phone compared to the low-light muck that was in those very early Nokia candy bar phones. It's amazing how bright these lenses have gotten. And so as well as being made of better stuff, and as well as just being, you know, way lower F numbers, we also have many more lenses than we used to have. It used to be one phone, one lens, one sensor. Done. Not anymore. Depending on how far up the food chain you go, it's very normal to have two lenses and two sensors. But three is, you know, when you, when you go all in for the cameraist of camera phones or phone cameras or whatever, It's three lenses. 
So this solves a really big problem that, I mean, there are definitely companies who've tried, but it's actually very difficult to get a true zoom lens into the form factor of a phone and to do so in such a way that you have a reliable mechanism that has many years of service in it that isn't like overly, overly, overly thick and, you know, like there's bulges and there's bulges. And also that will be optically high quality. It's immensely, immensely difficult to have a moving zoom lens collapse into the tiny, tiny area available in a in a phone to fit a camera system. So that I mean that is a fundamental difficulty of the for, the phone as a physical format. And um, one way around that issue would be simply to do digital zoom. But digital zoom, as a rule, is not good. It sucks. It's terrible. So the approach has been a hybrid approach. Rather than having a lens with the ability to, to 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 zoom, you know, over a range, but basically to be at any zoom level between those extremes, instead you have multiple lenses that give you a number of discrete levels of zoom, and then you use software to simulate the intermediate levels of zoom. So that's how iPhone zoom works, right? The reason you have three buttons for quick jumping between zooms, so 0.5, 1, and 2, is because you have three lenses, an ultra-wide, a wide, and the sort of the regular lens, which used to be called the telephoto, now seems to be just called the regular lens. But you can slide and zoom arbitrarily between the 0.5 and the 2. And that's achieved in software. But unlike a purely digital zoom, the software isn't doing that much in, you know, it doesn't have to make up nearly as much information, which means it can give us a way, 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 way more accurate answer than it could when it was purely a digital zoom. So that gives us a very, very good hybrid approach so the multiple lenses have definitely been a huge change to the camera phone. Obviously, so better materials in the lenses, giving us brighter lenses, lots of lenses, but ultimately all of this is projecting light onto sensors, and those sensors too have been massively improved. I mean, the early sensors, I imagine they were cheap throwaway sensors, but what we have now is that every pixel we have is bigger than the old pixels, which means way more light gathering. Every pixel is better, much lower noise, much higher light sensitivity. And the sensors contain more of them. So we have higher resolution, higher sensitivity, more color accurate. Basically, whatever definition you choose to throw at an image sensor, they have gotten better in every conceivable way. They are less noisy. So they've gone from these light, insensitive, noisy, low-resolution things to high-resolution, high-light sensitivity, low-noise, amazing sensors. Item number five 
is again a sort of a hybridy thing, but we get really, really, really great photographs out of our phone cameras in part because the lenses are so much better. So you have better light arriving at the sensor. In part because the sensor that light arrives at is better. But another part of the reason we get nicer photographs is that modern high-end phones have dedicated hardware for doing digital signal processing at the very least, or even more specialised image signal processing. So you may have DSP chips or ISP chips in your phone, depending on make, model, etc. But those chips contain the hardware dedicated to doing the kind of math you need to really massage the data coming out of those sensors into images in the best possible way. So getting rid of the noise, getting rid of the chromatic aberrations, getting rid of various kinds of blurs and things, getting, you know, really punching the gain as far as possible without getting noise, getting that colour accuracy as high as possible. Basically, image signal processing means that we get the absolute best photo out of the raw data picked up by the sensor. And the fact that those chips are getting ever, ever better is definitely resulting in us getting better and better photographs out of these phone cameras. Another, so item number six on my list is additional sensors. It's not just the case that the only sensor in play is the image sensor, right? I mean, we've already had uh, various sensors for detecting colour accuracy to, to white balance the flash in iPhones for a long time. That's an extra sensor. But we now also have sensors designed to map the three-dimensional depth of the scene in front of the phone. And if you have a three-dimensional depth map, those extra sensors really allow the camera to get the best out of the light that it gathers. So those additional sensors help it to do things like autofocus very quickly. And also it just gives more information, and that more information can be used by some of the features we'll talk about later down the list. It's also worth saying, so item number seven is advanced imaging modes. Right? Initially, early on in the digital camera era, a digital image was taken very much like an old film image was. There was a shutter. It opened. Light hit a light-sensitive thing. The shutter closed, and then the light was in some way read out of that light-sensitive thing, whether through chemistry, in the case of film, or through electronics, in the case of digital sensors. But it was something light-sensitive Some sort of shutter opens, light impacts the light-sensitive sensor, the shutter closes, light stops impacting, there's some processing, out comes an image. That's not how it works anymore. Well, I mean, it can work like that, but it doesn't have to. And on a modern iPhone, or indeed not just an iPhone, a modern high-end Android phone as well, there's way more going on than that. It's not a single firing of the shutter to produce a photograph. So one of the first such things to arrive on the phones was the panorama mode. Well, that 
basically has the shutter remaining open for second after second after second, gathering ever more information to create a single image with the intention that you move your phone about. So that's a different thing to the old expose, stop exposing, develop, right? I mean, you open the shutter and then you're building the image dynamically as you wave it around the scene, move it in a controlled fashion around the scene. The panorama mode is an early example of these advanced imaging modes, but things went further than that. So the next step was smart HDR, where you would tap the screen once to take a photograph. But under the hood, what was actually happening was that there were three exposures taken, an underexposure, a middle exposure, and an overexposure. And utterly underneath the hood, using things like the DSPs and ISPs, those multiple exposures were combined into a single exposure, and that single exposure was used to create the JPEG, which was then presented to the user as the image, right? So the user sees an image, but actually there were multiple exposures combined. And night mode then is a more modern approach, but again, you're effectively taking a constant flow of data and turning it into a single photograph. So that's again an advanced imaging mode. And if you're in the uh, Android universe, you also have this concept of an ultra zoom where you're using continuous exposure to bring the signal to noise ratio down so that you can actually do massive digital zooms and still get a good image out. So these notions were, we don't just open shutter, expose, close shutter process. It's way more complicated than that with these advanced imaging modes. Right? That, that has really, really changed things up. That's item number seven out of 12. 8 out of 12, then, is computational photography. So when you combine these advanced imaging modes with the additional sensors, with the DSPs and ISPs, you end up with an awful lot of information that is available for effectively reconstructing not just the intensity of the light, but the actual full physics of the light, the wave front, if you want to get really fancy pants about it. And if you can construct the phase and all the information about the light, then you can not imitate depth of field effect, but simulate, as in you do the math, you've captured enough information about the light so that you can do the actual math to figure out what a lens would have done to that light that you've quantified in a very precise way. So you can realistically simulate the effect of different physical lenses on the light that you captured in the sensor. So you're not imitating depth of field, you're actually calculating the depth of field. And you can vary it in post because you have these additional sensors gathering additional information about that light or about the scene in which the light was taken. So that gives us this concept of computational photography where you implement lenses in software. Uh, nine on my list then is, is artificial intelligence. AI is a big part of how camera apps work these days. So you have raw data coming out of the sensor, which is being run through the ISP and DSP and all that kind of stuff is happening. But then you're left with, again, some information that you're ready to turn into a JPEG. You're ready to bake it into a photograph. But before you do, maybe you can do the conversion from data to photo in a more intelligent way. Maybe you can analyze the scene and realize that, oh, based on these patterns I have learned through machine learning, 
I recognise this as a winter scene. This is a snow scene or a frost scene. Therefore, a quote-unquote correct exposure is actually an overexposure from a theoretically correct exposure. And so if your AI is good enough to recognise that, ah, yes, this is a winter landscape, therefore I shall intentionally overexpose it, the end result is the user looks at the, the user walks out, taps the shutter, looks at the photograph and goes, yes, that's what I wanted. Artificial intelligence has helped make it possible for the phone to give you what you want. We don't even think about how important this is, but it's huge. Phones are doing an amazing job at automatically processing. And that's especially true on the iPhone when you hit the magic wand button where you explicitly say, now run this through your AI and do your best. I mean, it, it does a spectacularly good job a lot of the time at guessing how I want that image edited. It, it, it really is impressive how well that magic wand works. But even before the magic wand, a whole bunch of AI has happened so that the very first shot, before you do any editing whatsoever, already has had the benefit of machine learning applied to it. That's why we're getting these amazing photographs straight out of the camera. Item 10 on my list, I think, is important as well, because part of the photographic experience on the phone is that not only can we take amazing photographs on our phones, but we can edit those photographs. And in order to be able to do even a simple edit, you need to be able to see your photographs well. The reason it didn't matter that there was no good image processing software on those early Nokias was because the screen of those early Nokias was so terrible you couldn't do any useful editing anyway. You wouldn't know if you're editing the colours in a sensible way. You wouldn't know if you're editing the contrast in a useful way. You wouldn't know if you had the sharpness right because the pixels were the size of dinner plates. Like There was just no point in trying to edit a photograph on one of those old terrible screens. So the reason we can do meaningful photo editing on our phones is because our phones now have amazing screens. If you buy a high-end phone, it will be colour calibrated, so it will be accurate, it will be very high density, it will support an impressive colour gamut, and it will have a high dynamic range. So you have these high-density, high-colour, high-dynamic-range, colour-accurate screens. Well, that's that's a place you can edit with confidence. That's a huge difference. And then, number 11 is simply software. Even the built-in photo apps are becoming extremely powerful photo editing tools. But be it Android or iOS, doesn't stop there. There are truly pro-level photo editing apps available for our phones because our phones have the ability to run high-end software. And there's a market for high-end image editing software. The screens mean that it that software has worked, you know, can be used in a sane and sensible way. The stuff being put on those screens is amazingly good quality because of everything that's come before. So it genuinely makes sense edit, and then very easily share images on our phones. So software is number 11. And the number 12, thank goodness Apple run the ball here, number 12 is raw support. We're now at a stage where not only do we have pro-level software, but with these, you know, Apple now has a special raw format for its iPhones. We're now 
able to use high quality software from Apple and from third parties to edit all the information captured by the sensor, not just the result of distilling that information down into JPEG. So now we get to do a better job of extracting the image we want from the vast amount of data being sucked up by all those sensors. So raw support is, I think, a game changer again in terms of how much power we can get out of these phones. So really, the reason we've gone from jeer-worthy garbage cameras to these amazing photographic tools in our phones it really is, in my mind, those 12 things. Better materials, better lenses, multiple lenses, better image sensors, DSPs and ISPs, additional sensors, advanced imaging modes, computational photography, artificial intelligence, high-quality screens, superb software, and raw support. So there we go. They are my 12 whys of the camera phone replacing the DSLR. Well, I hope you got some value out of this episode. There will be show notes at lets-talk.ie When you're there enjoying the show notes, you can also find a section called Support the Show. Um, As we come to the end of a year, this is the last show of 2020, I, I do want to take an extra moment to say to everyone, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has supported this show in any way, shape, size or form. And I genuinely do mean any way, shi- way, size, shape, or form, right? If you took the time to share the show with a friend or friends in person or on social media, that helps spread the word. That helps make the show more popular. The more people listen to the show, you know, the, if 1% of people who listen contribute financially, well, if I if you help double the amount of people who listen, then the 1% becomes twice as much money so you may think of yourself as not oh i i'm not helping financially for bart no we've read the word that's still helping believe it or not and so really if the only way you you're in a position to help because hey it's 2020 is by just telling a friend and you did that well thank you i really appreciate it another way you can help without spending a cent is to review the show in the podcatcher you happen to use again that helps spread the word and the more the word is spread the more people in a position to help financially there will be in the listenership therefore the more help i'm likely to get so just spreading the word reviewing the show telling a friend all of that is helping to keep the show on a sound financial footing even if it isn't a financial transaction so you know, think of it that way and also my ego could do with the odd boost. So when you say nice things, it makes me feel better. I still appreciate it. I mean, I'm human. I have my foibles. I like the odd pat on the head. Um, But there are a whole bunch of you who, despite the fact that 2020 is 2020 all over the place, you were in a position to be able to support the show financially and chose to do so. And that is so meaningful to me because... I really enjoy podcasting. I want to podcast, but I'm not in a position where I can absorb the financial cost of podcasting. Podcasting has to break even for me to be able to continue to do it. And enough of you listening get enough value from the show that 
you consider it worth your while to support me financially either on Patreon by pledging a small dollar amount for every show I publish, two shows a month. So if you'd like to give me $2 a month, pledge one, that'll double up to two because it's two shows a month, one Apple, one photography, yada, yada, yada. And then, of course, the PayPal button for the, you know, one-off or sporadic, occasional, larger contributions. Basically, Patreon is an amazingly efficient way of making regular, repeated, small-dollar contributions. And PayPal is an efficient way of making rarer, sort of bespoke, one-off, occasional, larger contributions. So it's just the way the fee structures work. Uh, basically, PayPal is a terrible way to spend a dollar to someone because 40 cent of it goes to PayPal and only 60 cent of it makes it to the podcaster. Whereas if you use PayPal to send $10, I think it's something like 79 cent goes to PayPal and all the rest comes to the podcaster. So percentage wise, you send $10, that's really valuable. If you send $1, almost half of it goes to PayPal. Whereas at Patreon, the fee structure is completely different. So Patreon's actually an efficient way to regularly give a small amount. That, that's why both exist. That's why I'm signed up to both. Anyway, to those of you who've helped keep the show above water, despite the fact that 2020 is 2020, thank you ever so much. To absolutely everyone listening, regardless of what specific feast you do or don't celebrate at this time of year, most of the planet celebrates something around about now-ish. So whatever it is that you do, I I hope you found a way to make it meaningful, fulfilling, joyful even. Despite the odd, odd year it is. And most importantly, I hope you've managed to do so safely so that many of us as possible will be around Hale and healthy to have the ultimate end of year celebration this time next year. Like, whether you like Christmas or something else, whatever it is you're doing, I think we all want to have the blowout party of parties for the end of 2021. I certainly do. Anyway, you know, it's been a tough year. So many of you have been able to continue to support the show. Thank you. I really hope everyone manages to have some some quality time as 2020 draws to a close. And I really, really hope all of us have a more prosperous, more fulfilling, more joyous, safer and healthier 2021. Again, you'll find the show at lestastalk.ie I've been your host, Bart Bouchard. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, my name is Dave Ginsberg. I'm the host of In Touch with iOS at InTouchWithIOS.com with my co-host, Warren Sklar. We talk about iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, Apple TV, and related technologies. We also have some great Apple guests from the Apple community that also talk to us uh, relating to any tips, any apps, any news of the day, anything that's going on with Apple. Please give us a listen. Our website is InTouchWithIOS.com.